0: Welcome to The Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds I'll be joined by my co-host Chris Wachter, as every other week we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter. And my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Chris, my friend. Davis. We are back for another episode. Good How? to be back. How are you doing, man? What's going on?
1: Doing well. Good to see you again. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, not too much. I uh, just got noticed on the way in uh, that uh, the Minneapolis uh, officials have declared winter parking restrictions. Did you see that? Never uh, ending uh, winter Yeah, forever. Yeah, it's probably one every, once every five, seven years they close half the streets down for the sake of plowing and all that, or I guess for ambulances. Is that why they do it? Uh, To get get them through the narrowing roads with all the snow uh, safely. So that was kind of disappointing. So I I don't like it because it means everyone parks in front of my house. I'm on the odd odd Ah. side. And so, which means... Uh, you know, that's my, I guess that's my selfish, uh, cranky, uh, response get to it, off but my lawn. get off my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, but no, how about, how about you? How sad are things news, news. in the life of Davis?
0: Uh, doing, doing well. i actually just got back from a week long class, uh, on the book of revelation and never, never been in a week long class of the book of revelation, but, um, I'm thankful for it. Yeah. There, there's a lot in that book. Obviously I think, uh, one of our textbooks was called reading revelation responsibly, uh, which is a title that I think is is helpful in a lot of ways, because there's a lot of ways to read Revelation irresponsibly yeah. and make it mean things that it doesn't necessarily mean. Um, but a lot of even what we're trying to do with this podcast is let the thing that is loud in the scriptures kind of steer the parts that are confusing or quiet and uh, Revelation, there's just a lot of room to do that. Um, and so I, I think two things that I had never seen in that book as a result of this class that I'm, I'm kind of taking home are one is seeing the first description you have of Jesus in the first three chapters is really easy to get kind of wrapped up in. And there's a lot of recapitulation of Daniel's vision. But I, I think we're, we're prone to read it very literally, very quickly. And we want to Google an image of what this looks like. And in doing that, we're quick to miss the fact that Jesus is actually pictured as walking around the churches Mm -hmm. uh, as this very stark visual of this is where Jesus is hanging out. He's involved in the lives of the local churches. And if you want to know what God is like, if you want to have a meeting with God, show up at church and Jesus is there and he's taking care of the church, regardless of how messy it looks on the outside. And As people who are helping steer churches, we can say it always looks messy on the outside. And even even those letters, it's like, yeah, those are messy places, but Jesus is still there and he hasn't given up on it. So that was really encouraging. And then the second one was a, uh, you're given this vision of of the enemy, of Satan uh, in Revelation as one who has taken a death blow to the head. Um, and yet he has look it looks like he has healed is the description. And I don't remember the exact chapter that's in, uh, but wow, what a vivid picture of what happened at the cross and what has now subsequently happened in the last two thousand years. It looks like he's healed, even though he really does have this death blow to the head that will be his eventual demise, but between now and then he looks like he's doing okay, mm. but he's but he's not, and so right. there's just a real uh, uh, kind of getting your footing right um, that happens when reading this book. Of just like, oh man, there really is this cosmic war taking place that we are a part of, and and what does it look like to cheer on the hero of the story and root against the beast who who does have this this wound? And um, yeah, the last thing I'll say is the professor made this profound point where he just said, I, I think Satan is. Equal, equal parts insane that he continues to battle against a war that he, is, he knows he's lost, but also he's a genius in that he has convinced nearly all of the West that there is not this second final judgment in mm. the end of time. And I thought that was a, a pretty profound thing to say and, and quite true. Uh, that's that
1: good. It is. We should do a Revelation podcast sometime just on the whole thing. I, I think we such, need to. such a fun... I think Vern Poitras says about Revelation that that he encourages readers not to get over engrossed in the details, yeah. but to just sit back and cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for final victory. Wow. And I thought that's just great kind of overarching advice. There's lots, lots more to say, of course, about the book, but I thought that's... Great interpretational advice, I think, for that book is don't get don't get consumed over the things you can't understand because they're always going to be that uh, sometimes and elsewhere in the Bible too. But look for Jesus, uh, look for us and how we're being saved by Him by grace alone through faith, uh, not by our works. Uh, and and detest the beast, the one who's coming against all of that, and know that his his days are numbered and 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 rejoice. Don't fear.
0: That's so good. And I, yeah, I think we need to probably dive into revelation, but we're not doing revelation today. So let us, let us turn the page in. And today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy 34. This is the end of the Pentateuch or the Torah or what's called the law, the instruction, the first five books of the old Testament. This is the very end. So that's exciting. Then we'll turn the page to Psalm 52 before hopping into first Thessalonians four verses one to 12. And if you're keeping score, our uh, but what about passage this week is Mark 12, 28 to 34. So let us flip back now to Deuteronomy 34 and talk a little bit about the end of the law, the yeah. end of the, the instruction. What do the you got Pentateuch.
1: for us? Yeah. One thing I like about this passage is um, that it, you know, Moses, who is, as the rest of the Bible indicates in many and various ways, uh, who represents the law, doesn't get in to this uh, kind of signifier of salvation in the Old Testament, this land of salvation that is Eden-like and is uh, typical of a Christian salvation experience uh, that Hebrews talks about in the New Testament. So just the fact that the law has kept out this idea of uh, self-reconciliation, self-justification, trying to clean ourselves up before God. um, And, that personified really in the person of Moses uh, is is kept out and so and then what's what what goes in the second generation of Israelites led by Joshua and Caleb which I know is not in this exact passage but we find later that they have faith they believe that God is able to bring them in even though it, as they peer into the land and they see all these obstacles and very strong peoples and armies and cities and uh, the, uh, they, they trust God and so you kind of have this neat little uh, juxtaposition position or contrast there between self-trust with the first generation that we can't do this. Uh, we can't overcome and they're right, but there's trusting in them their own works and their self. Uh, that's passed up with the second generation um, of faith. And I believe Caleb is a Judahite as well. That's the tribe of Jesus. I think Joshua is a different tribe, but uh, to have a Judahite, not a Levite, which is the tribe of the law, that's the tribe of Moses, a Judahite uh, lead lead the charge in essentially uh, representing Christ and faith and trust in God alone in his works uh, is, is a really cool thing. So, um, yeah, so Moses, uh, that, that whole thing, having those two things together, I think helped tell a great law grace kind of contrast story back in the Old Testament that becomes clear in the New Testament as we look at our lives and think that's the only way that we get in, uh, to salvation is to, to believe that Jesus is enough that, that, um, and that we don't add law on top of that. The law has died outside the land of our story and we only enter by faith alone. So...
0: Yeah and and even just to to zoom in more on this this dying outside of the land this is the end of the first five books and you have Moses right. who who's likely writing most of the story for these first five books and he's dying. And that the, the, the images that were given by God here are not an accident. He, he takes Moses up on this mountain and he shows him the whole land. It says, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Mm. And verse five, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there. So you have this mm. this, this, stri- this striking picture of God saying, come on up. I'm going to show you this land and this vastness of this land. This whole story really up to this point has been about me delivering the descendants of Abraham into this promised land. And here it is, take it in, this Grand Canyon vision that that Moses has (laughs) given. But yeah, you as the one who is representing the law and this second covenant form of salvation that resembles the knowledge of good and evil that your first parents ate of, that is quite contrasting of what the tree of life ultimately is, this isn't gonna get you to the land, the one who's gonna come after you. You are a forerunner of the, the one who's gonna bring my people to the land, but it's not gonna be this way. Uh, it is striking. It's, I think it's meant to, to, to draw us in and, and have us think about the way we think about faith and consider how mm-hmm. are we relating to God because uh, saints die a lot in the Old Testament. And a lot of the times they're not given almost any real estate. It's just like, and Joseph died and they kept his bones and walked around with it. Um, and here we have Moses and this zeroing in on his death. it it actually does resemble Jesus in many ways where you have the story of Jesus's life covering a span of 30 years and all of a sudden everything slows down. And we have the screen move from from panel to panel slowly as Jesus is walking towards the cross as the means of saying this death of a prophet is going to precede the entrance into the land of promise, Uh, very similar to to Moses. Uh, So you have a both and, I think, in Moses' death. One, he contrasts the way we enter the promised land, but two, he resembles that fact that a prophet is going to die outside the land. Uh, I think one more thing I wanted to point out on this too is there's a, there's a great hymn about this very passage written by Isaac Watts called there is a land and there's just some money lines in there about there's a land of pure delight where saints, immortal reign, infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain and on and on he goes just describing this land. And I think it's quite life giving to, to have this picture of the new heavens and the new earth It's this real eternal land of promise that the physical land of promise was pointing to. But the last line of the song, Chris, is the thing I wanted to, uh, us to consider today because he—he uh, he, this is where theology matters. Even these these saints of old, and and Isaac and I can have a chat maybe in the new heavens, and the new <laughs> earth, and he can correct me on all the things that I right. would I say that are foolish. But uh, there's this line that he's and this is how the song ends: "Could we but climb where Moses stood and view the landscape over, not Jordan's stream nor Death's cold flood?" should fright us from the shore. So in essence he's saying the the real thing you need for your faith like is just to imagine standing where Moses stood. And and I think that that's not a bad thing to do per se, but it's not actually appreciating the full story. There's this expectation that if man if we could just do this thing, like even just imagine yourself sitting where Moses was, maybe that will be the 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 spark in in your faith that you need to just carry on today. And instead, I think the storyline paints a much better picture, a much better invitation that says, actually, we have something far better than going up and standing and looking at the land. We're being told that Christ came down from this mountain and already died that death that gave us access into the land. And the writer of Hebrews would say, to do this exercise, to actually consider that big picture storyline and how all of this connects and how you actually have a greater access to God than Moses did as one who died outside the land, this is what is going to instigate your faith. This is what is going to bring you, in essence, closer to God by just recapitulating the story and saying, man, I think we actually got something better than what Moses was offered as he was this mighty prophet, and no no Old Testament prophet of old actually could measure up to this guy. And yet you have more than what he was given in his access to God.
1: Love it. So good. Yeah. You and I talked about this too before Davis, but this is where a lot of those promises, those divine self-disclosures uh, in the Old Testament of God, where he says so often, I will do this for you. Mm-hmm. I will be there for you. I will pave the way. I will flush out your enemies. In this case, this is a big, this is a big part of them going into the land. He's saying, I will, I, it's okay. I'll be there with you. I will take care of everything. Uh, that's where they become so important because God is not just saying, I will do it. He's saying, you won't. Mm. And it's not on you. And so something, something is good, not just be on the basis of what it is, but what it isn't a lot in theology. And so grace is good because not just it's grace and it's one-way love, but because it's not works and it's not on us. And so I think when we read those stories and, and read those divine promises and self-disclosures and descriptions of himself, we need to read, well, what isn't it? And so and a lot of that relates to Isaac Watts and what you just read and, and Moses on the mountain and seeing ourself in him or maybe we shouldn't, you know? Yeah. Uh, And, and then just keep, you keep reading the story and think of Jericho and how they march around the the building and don't touch it and they don't do anything. They blow a trumpet once, I think, at the end of those seven days or whatever it is and the the whole thing comes falling down. So, it's just, it, it's meant to, if there's a trumpet sound, ultimately in the Bible, it's that God is good and that he is powerful and that he does everything. And it's a trumpet sound of grace, ultimately, there around the the buildings of Jericho.
0: And, and it allows us to, I think, do uh, the anti-motivation posters. Have you seen these before? So you know, I have.
1: <laughs> they're great. Uh,
0: Nolan Bauer, who does a lot of work on our, our Red Tree website, uh, helpful in getting this thing off the ground and keeping it afloat. He was telling me one about Mount Everest and it says, uh, Every corpse on Mount Everest was once a highly motivated individual. I've seen
1: that one. It's great. So maybe calm down. (laughs) Right. Just temper yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: So maybe that, that idea of, could we but climb this mountain? It's like, well,
1: maybe calm down.
0: Maybe, maybe, maybe there's another way. And in fact, there
1: is. Highly motivated and stronger than you are. That's right. And they're up there. like, Like Moses. Very morbid and Yeah. Uh, but true.
0: Yeah, let's turn the page then to Psalm 52. So we covered Psalm 51 uh, last episode, but now we're going to turn the page. And, and I got to be honest with you, I I found myself very quickly while reading this psalm today going, oh, man, I hope I'm on the right side of the equation here. Because this, this psalm begins by kind of pointing a finger at some people. And I was in the confession time, I, I found myself going like, okay, who can I put on the other side of my finger? So I'm on the right side of the equation today. So, so correct me, Chris, how how can I read Psalm yeah.
1: 52? Well, I know what you mean. And I, I think um, one thing for me in the first several verses that I see, and actually in verse zero, which is these little verses before verse one uh, that come up, they kind of describe the the they're part of the psalm they're part of god's word they're not just there from the editors of of translations but it says uh, a maskill of david when doeg the edomite had gone to saul and told him david's gone to the house of ahimelech and so oh. it's an interesting like story <laughs> about this guy who's like tattling you know uh and he's like um exposing where david is he's uh kind of almost, almost plays the role of the accuser um that's
0: helpful it, to hear because I actually did not know that. That's, yeah, that's so, the
1: the the backdrop, but it's it's still like you. It's easy to see yourself in that, you know. I think in some ways, and I, to kind of go back to your question, um, sometimes in Psalms it's it's easier to read ourselves in the in the place of the hero, maybe, or too quickly, maybe in the place of David, um, and to think, well, how is God against my enemies? You know, in the same way, and that's true. It, there's a lot of truth to that sometimes, uh, but. There's also a lot of you can flip the whole thing around and say, well, I'm just as bad as these people who are being called out, you know, and who are being declared enemies. I'm just like Doeg. I've tattled before. I've exposed people. I've been against people. I've had hate in my heart in different levels, and you know, at different parts of the psalm, they they use phrases like um, practicing deceit or lying, plotting destruction, mm-hmm. uh, loving evil rather than good. I mean, I've I've done that a billion times in my life, and so I feel like the first part of the psalm plays that role of accuser. Like I'm I'm being accused as well. Like the law is accusing me and exposing my my faults and my inabilities like a mirror. And so, but then you have a switch in verse, in verse eight. So right after verse seven, there's a switch and uh, where David says, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. In verse nine, what you have done, I will always, for what you've done, I'll always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. I'll hope in your name for your name is good. And So there's a pretty strong contrast then between, I think it's an invitation for us to move from the first part to the second and from that place of accusation to being in a place of faith like David. Because David's not saying the response to the first seven verses for those who are like that is to just try to be a good person and strive. He's kind of embodying a life of faithfulness, I think. And so really notable contrast in verse seven to the person who trusted in his great wealth uh, to verse eight, where David says, I trust in God's unfailing love. And so there's a great law of grace contrast there between trusting in what I've done with my hands, all the money I've made, all the good I've done to simply being a person who trusts in the work of God, just like we were talking about with uh, Deuteronomy 34 in in a lot of ways. So, So in one sense, it's an exposure. I think it's like the law, the first seven verses are, are the law to me, the law to us. But then I think you see a lot of contrast and invitation into that latter way of thinking too. So the hope through the gospel is that we can become like that and think like that and pray like that and be less about ourselves like that, less religious, uh, less ascetic maybe, or less about the rules and more about simple trust in the love of God, which is fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ? We come to find out later in the story.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's really illuminating. And it's, it's driving me back to verse nine, which you read with that idea, for what you have done, I will always praise you. And I, I think this speaks volumes to us here in the 21st century. You know, you have psychologists who are beginning to write about this anti-arrival fallacy or, or, or just describing what an arrival fallacy is by saying, all of us just kind of have this idea of if I just keep if i just move to that next spot in life you know if you're single if i just become married or in my job if i just move to that position then i will i'll finally be able to relax and and take a deep breath and and be just okay with myself and psychologists have labeled it, helpfully this fallacy of you, you never feel like you've arrived. Um, you, you find this with professional athletes. As they move from minor leagues to major leagues, they have that same angst that they had when they were in the minors, maybe just a little bit more money. Uh, but the money doesn't do anything to that existential angst that they feel. This, Yeah, this vacuum that exists within the human soul that a, the author of Ecclesiastes says is, is eternity, which lives in, inside of you. And so it's not an accident here that the psalmist is saying, for what you have done, this one thing that you have done is enough to build my entire life around. There isn't an arrival fallacy behind building a life upon worshiping God for the one ultimate act that he has done. We can look back on this with New Testament clarity and say, this is definitely about the gospel. For what you have done by bringing us into the land of eternity through the death of Jesus, not by the work of our hands, but by the great work of Jesus's hands that, that are still scarred to this day, Right, I can build my life upon that and I can actually have rest today. I can take a deep breath and go, I can even see people around me because I don't need to be thinking about myself all the time and trying to bring myself to that next level up, fill in the blank.
1: I'm right. good. Right. Yeah. I preached that last week, actually, in my sermon at Hiawatha, this this idea of I was talking to a buddy about how we, the older we get, we feel like we're worse and worse at our jobs and how objectively that's probably not true because the more you do something, the more comfortable you get, the more, uh, fine tuned and just better. Maybe it's something, you know, not always the case, but usually that's the case. We feel like we're worse. And I think we're just thinking, cause I think that's because the more you live, the more mistakes you make and the more people you see who are better than you at it, you know? Or the more you see that your wrongful motivations in your heart, or there's always a gap, I think, there between where you're at and where you could be. So just going back to that needle moving thing you were talking about and how true that is, you know, if you're, really, if you're honest with yourself in your life, you can be growing and getting better, but you, it just, you're never gonna arrive. You're never gonna quite get there, especially if, and maybe solely, but especially if you think about yourself as like the final arbiter of what it means to be whole, and good and um,
0: enough so you're saying I shouldn't get that no regrets tattoo that's probably not going to be
1: maybe table it for now I I don't know yeah it's (laughs) it's your call
0: that is one of my favorite tattoos because I think it is this like utter deceit of, yep. I, I can't have regret. I'm getting this tattoo because yeah. I have regrets, right? Yeah. Like that is, yep. A, yep. I know it's no no regrets actually with the Z. So, <laughs> all right, let's look at the New Testament then. We're continuing marching through First Thessalonians and we are in chapter 4 now, verses 1 to 12. Uh, it begins with, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living now we ask you and urge you in the lord jesus to do this more and more i want to stop there because i think there's uh much we could say first and foremost as we're thinking about sanctification this idea of growing up in god uh, it is this notion of becoming who we already are. And you hear this language right here in Paul as he's saying, I, just, I want you to live a life that pleases God, as in fact you are living, as ones who believe the gospel. And in fact, I'm asking you, I'm urging you in the Lord to do this more and more. I mean, you can, you can summarize this idea as believing the gospel more and more. I think this is something that... Um, you're going to see as the rest of the text continues as he brings up things like sexual immorality, uh, not deceiving those around us, not looking like those who don't know God. Um, there's a temptation to silo what we just read and then just turn to those and dial up the how do we do that? And uh, if we do that, we're going to miss Paul's great point here, which is the gospel informs how we do that. The reason he's talking about sexual immorality is he wants you to think about the gospel in light of your sexual thinking. That the gospel has something to say more and more to all of life. Mm. God is the designer of sexuality. And so, of course... Uh, the gospel has has ways that it wants to speak into how we're even conceiving of our bodies. Elsewhere, Paul's going to say your body's not your own, but you belong to your spouse. Ultimately, as a great pointer to the fact that you yourself belong to Jesus, the ultimate husband. Uh, so too it goes to have you have you thought about the ways that the gospel has implications for your work life and not taking advantage of people, though you could. Jesus did not take advantage of you, but right. came underneath you and and died for you. And so, uh, this this does have uh, echoes of our last episode, which is just the order of operations: JDFU. Right? Jesus died for us, yeah. and that informs the way we see all of life around us. Like Ephesians five, I believe, talks about uh, you were once darkness but now you have become light in the Lord. So live as children of light. This, this order of operations is, is everything. So gospel more and more as we talk about living lives that are pleasing to God.
1: Love it. Yeah. I love the idea of repetition there too. And you see this in others of Paul's letters as well, where he says, uh, it's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. You know, he, first uh, Corinthians 15, Philippians three right here, he does it as well. Um, where he says, I'm bringing you back to what you already know. And so I think there's this sometimes certainly it's a cultural thing, societal thing, I think, but it's also ingrained in the human heart where we want something new. And I think this is just a fresh permission for us uh, to think it's okay to bask in things in a repeated way and to not like strive after vain new things all the time, you know, that, that won't satisfy.
0: has the echo of Psalm 52 again. This right. one thing that you have done, I'm going to build my life upon it. I'm going to yeah. come back to church and be healed week in, week out to hear about this proclamation of the good
1: news of Jesus yep. Christ. Over and over again. And it shapes preaching too. And I think how we should kind of gospel or encourage one another um, as Christians, like we call people back to what's true. We proclaim, this is what's true about you now, but rather than hold it out in this strictly future-based sense. Like if you do this, if you kind of obey these imperatives of the New Testament, then you'll be a good person or a good Christian or a more more holy Christian. That's not how he's thinking. That's not how it's written. Instead, we're pronouncing that what's already true about you and the fruit that's already been born, do so more and more. Let the gospel inform your love for your neighbor and your love, uh, specifically other Christians and your work and things like that, sexuality and things like that.
0: Yeah. Did you want to say anything else on First uh, Thessalonians 4 before we turn the page?
1: Yeah, there's a lot here, but I think at the very end, he talks about a passage I like a lot or a couple of verses has to do with this, this encouragement in verse 11 to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own be- business and work with your own hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Um, and I think that you know, it, it's maybe kind of out of place and odd, especially when you see Paul say, like I beat my body into submission for the sake of the gospel, like in First in Corinthians. So it's kind of like, well, it, it should we strive or not, right? And what should our lives look like? What I like about quietness and simplicity and contentment in our work and just living a simple life, you know, um, having a few friends, maybe getting married and having kids or having, having a job and just like doing our best at it, you know, and just being content with that is I think it exemplifies a grace-informed life. Um, because the law would say, shout, be loud with your life, get out in front, be better than others, uh, wear your, your accolades on your sleeves. And um, so it would be kind of the opposite of this, but I think grace says it's not about you. So live a quiet life and just be okay with the fact that it's not about you. Be okay with the fact that Jesus' shed blood is all you'll ever need and do so To quote the beginning of the passage again, do do that more and more.
0: Yeah, and I think when when Jesus talks about letting your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, I I think he's not preaching against what Paul is saying here. In fact, I think Paul is helping us, uh, I think Paul's describing what Jesus showed us in his ministry, which is, Jesus did live a life like this. Jesus did have a self-forgetful, self-giving life uh, that brought honor to his Father in heaven and to do so to, the holiest people i feel like i have met are those who are just not thinking a lot about themselves they're yeah. they're living a quiet life they are those who who demonstrate a, a measure of security of not needing to tell you of their accomplishments and their accolades to earn respect um, and man, I, I just want to be around right. those people more and more.
1: Yeah, Ted Lasso, right? We've mentioned him a couple of times Come on, on this uh, on this podcast or uh, the movie My Idiot Brother. Uh, if you've ever seen that or not, but yeah. it's kind of a similar, Paul v- yeah, Paul Rudd, similar um, Ted Lasso figure there, and I think a, a helpful. You know, albeit secular, but still a helpful, like, picture of, I think, Christian holiness and what, like, healthy spirituality looks like.
0: Yeah, and this, uh, the, to borrow the language of the pastor, are about to look out, a, a close to the kingdomness, uh, uh, yeah. I think, in these movies that show us kind of, almost a supernatural demonstration of of uh, horizontal grace, meaning person to person. Like, what does it look like to demonstrate God's grace to one another in, in both of these instances, they get a lot of flack. People are constantly resisting them and being jerks to them. And I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, I, I'm really good at keeping score and wanting to retaliate. And in the cases of that like, you brought up, Ted Lasso and my idiot brother, there just seems to be this warmth that exudes from them that they're not keeping tallies of the wrongs that are hmm. done against them. But they're able to just move forward with the quietness and a kindness and a love that isn't putting themselves yeah at the center of, of the story they're telling, and it changes lives. It's remarkable. It's it's the opening scene mm. of Ted Lasso where he sits down in these graffiti-covered chairs that are all blue, and then slowly around him, they all begin to change colors because mm. that's what grace does. Right. It makes, quiet, makes the you quiet. cry, too. It you know, it's emotional. Let laugh and cry. So. Always. All right. Well, let's look at our But What About passage, which, again, is our attempt to study the difficult passages of Scripture and say, Uh, Is is grace actually involved here as well? Is the gospel going to bring clarity to passages that seem to fly in the face of that? And uh, upon further clicking, I I believe they always do. And so today's is Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. And I'll kind of just fly over it. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What is going on here, Chris? And why is this something that gets lodged against grace?
1: Right. And so, yeah, the reason why we put this at the end here with our, but what about is because this this is a passage that a lot of Christians look at as the like the main thing for Christian living. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think they might even say, they might not say it if you ask them flat out, but they kind of live and sort of speak as though this is the pinnacle of all of Jesus's, te- even almost over his death uh, and, and his resurrection. Uh, because the question of what's the greatest commandment, like he has an answer for them. And, and so love God, love people might make some logic, some logical sense to, to a lot of us. And in some ways it's a summation of the law uh, we see elsewhere. And so, um, and the scribe acknowledges that too. Um, but in another sense, like this is where a lot of that love God, love people thing comes from that we hear about like in church vision statements and so forth, which maybe we can come back to. But, but I think why this is here is because, uh, or why we have it here is because that's actually not the case. Like if you really look at what's happening here, the Jesus is not saying this is the pinnacle. Like he's answering a question and he has an interaction with the scribe over it, but he's not saying this is like the pinnacle or the, the, the biggest thing people should do when they wake up every morning as a Christian is to think, how does this, how do these laws have bearing over my life? And the reason we know that is because at the very end, he says to the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom. Uh, like, you, which means it implies you're not in yet, right? So uh, it's it's one thing for him to say, you have the complete right answer, you completely get it, you're graduated, uh, you're in the kingdom with that answer. Like that answer got you in the kingdom, but he doesn't say that. Yeah. He implies there's still distance. Now, I think the scribe is onto something because in the passages you just read, he says um, that these commandments, this type of like, Love and this perspective on the love of God and love of people is greater than all sacrifice, which he's getting from places like Hosea 6.6, 6, which says mercy is greater than sacrifice. That there's this prophetic kind of like bent and call towards like a hierarchy of sorts, even in the Old Testament, that love and mercy are greater than the law. And the scribe is starting to pick up on those kind of overtones and those hints. And so, that's what actually kind of impresses Jesus is he has a wise answer in that regard. He's understanding that something better than the law is on the horizon, but he doesn't have Jesus fully yet. He is not fully clinging to what that full full expression of love is which is the person but also the work of jesus christ and so maybe he became a christian i like to think that he did when he was kind of really onto things here and kind of seeing these signals of the new testament wrapped up in the old testament and the prophets but at this point he's with a summation of the law he's still kept out even knowing what the greatest of the law is is still keeping him away
0: and it's really helpful to see this because the the tools that we're bringing to the scriptures as we're studying them is both discontinuity and continuity. So there's a discontinuity as we move from old to new. The new is meant to replace the old as something that has better promises and is going to do more than the old could. And yet, of course, we're not uh, detaching from the Old Testament and saying that has no value. No, of course. Actually, both covenants are operative in both the Old and the New Testament. There's meant to be a movement away, though, from the old into the new. That's what brings us into the kingdom. And I, and I love this, was an accident, but I love that this is the passage we're looking at on today's episode because it's almost the it's c- uh, control C, control V of where we started. That is, Moses is up on the mountain as the pinnacle of the law. He's the one who's representing, just like the scribe, a great love for God and a love for others. And yet God is saying, this is gonna allow you to see the kingdom. This is gonna allow you to see the promised land. You are not far from it. And yet you are not going to access this kingdom through this teaching. There is something greater than teaching itself that needs to happen for Mm -hmm. you to enter the promised land. And that is union with the great rescuer, redeemer, savior, the one who is in the line of Joshua. The one whose very name is Yeshua, right? Um, and Jesus Christ, the one who died for you. And so, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's good. And it follows then that that uh, we don't see love God, love people, or the kind of uh, recapitulation of these commandments post cross anywhere in the New Testament. Instead, you see places like First John four, where it says, "This is what love is: not that you've loved God." but that he's loved you and sent his son to be a sacrifice of atonement uh, for your sins. And so there's that flip. It's like, we haven't loved God actually, but the good news is that he has loved us and the way he's loved us is at great cost to himself.
0: Which is the great mystery. Cause this is not, we're not gonna say, hey, don't love God and love people. That's, right? That's It's a good thing. And yet, how does it happen? Mm. It, it happens by beholding. It happens by Psalm 52 verse nine. I'm gonna remember this thing that you have done and in so doing beholding and believing this message of great importance is actually going to breed a love of God and a love for others that I can't do within myself. But when I see the one who died for my sins, it changes me like nothing else can. Not like sitting under this law and studying it, but by sitting under the one who, is, who has come near, who was once far off, but has now been drawn near. Amen. For joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod.